Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist, and I'd like to welcome you to episode 40 of Everything Compliance. Everything Compliance is the only podcast in compliance featuring the top roundtable of compliance commentators. It includes Mike Volkoff, founder of the Volkoff Law Group, Matt Kelly, founder and editor of Radical Compliance, Jonathan Armstrong, partner at Quarterly Compliance, and Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitors with Affiliated Monitors. First, have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? As I have founded the Compliance Podcast Network, I'm always looking for new podcasts. If you have wanted to start a podcast but were at a loss as to how to do so, please listen to a message from today's sponsor, One Stone Creative. If you are enjoying this show, you might enjoy hosting your own. As an expert in your field, you have skills, knowledge, and insight that can help you expand your practice, meet new people, and create amazing content to share with the world. In as little as two hours a week, you can dramatically change how you promote, fill, and position your business, and One Stone Creative can show you how. Learn more at onestonecreative.net. In today's episode, we take a look at some of the issues that uh, we think are going to be significant for compliance officers in 2019. Matt Kelly takes a look at how the change in the House of Representatives will lead to additional uh, investigations, which will impact companies and compliance officers. Mike Volkoff looks at some of his 2019 FCPA predictions. Jay Rosen wonders about what 2019 means for a CCO in the practice of compliance. And Jonathan Armstrong takes a look at data privacy and data protection. It's an excellent episode. I know you will enjoy it. Everything Compliance is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back for the first Everything Compliance episode of 2019. As always, I'm joined by the full gang. Matt Kelly, founder and editor of Radical Compliance, also the coolest guy in compliance. Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitors. Mike Volkoff, the founder of the Volkoff Law Group. And joining us from uh, New York today, although he's typically uh, based in England, is Jonathan Armstrong from Quarterly Compliance in London. Gentlemen, welcome. Hello. Hello. Welcome. Hello, hello. hello. So, uh, Matt Kelly, we had, uh, I thought, some interesting news over the past few weeks uh, after the change in the uh, regime change in the uh, House of Representatives, and uh, Maxine Waters made some interesting announcements that you wrote about earlier this week. You want to tell us about that and what it might mean for the compliance professional going forward? Yeah, sure. So Maxine Waters, for those who do not know, is the new chairman of the House Financial Services Committee. She is a fairly liberal Democrat from Los Angeles, and she has been a longtime member of the Financial Services Committee, I want to say at least 20 years, and she's been in Congress for close to 30. Um, Certainly, anybody who is uh, conservatively minded and listening to this, I'm sure you're probably no fan of Maxine Waters. Uh, Politics is politics, but the fact remains, she is now chairman of a very powerful committee uh, in Congress. And so whatever she says about what she is interested in does have some relevancy for ethics and compliance officers, corporate legal departments, and whatnot. And so she started uh, on January 16. She started that process by giving a speech on what sort of issues she plans to make priorities for 2019 and presumably 2020. Um, I think this is interesting because Listeners might remember a few months ago uh, when we were doing one of these podcasts, I said that I think President Trump, once the Democrats took the House, would seek to draw a sharper distinction 
with his policies, his administration, what they are doing. He's going to double down even more because that's what he does to play to his base. And Democrats would then become the foil to what he wants. Well, this is sort of the converse of that is what Maxine Waters was talking about now. She's showing how uh, the House is now going to start trying to oversee the Trump administration in ways that they, look, this is politics, they will want to make the Trump administration and the policies it's carrying out, they will want to make that painful for the president. Uh, so that does mean a lot of hearings. And uh, corporations are probably going to wind up being the pawns in the back and forth between the House Financial Services Committee and many other committees, Judiciary, Energy Committee, uh, the oversight committees that uh, the House does have, between all of these committees in the Trump administration, there's going to be a lot of needling back and forth, and the needles are going to fly right through a lot of what corporations do in this country. So that is why you have to pay attention to what Maxine Waters is saying, whether you like her or not. So uh, first, you know, as I kind of hinted at before, I don't think, and Waters did not talk much about specific pieces of legislation that she would like to push uh, and see them get passed in the law because Republicans still control the Senate. So I don't think that compliance officers have to sit back saying, oh, my God, are we going to have like another Dodd-Frank Act or another Sarbanes-Oxley Act, anything like that? No, we're not. Um, that's not going to happen. But she did talk an awful lot about hearings, special reports, all these other things, and that is where companies will get pulled into the vortex of political machinations that are going to be happening. Um, what did catch me somewhat by surprise is that Chairman Waters talked an awful lot about workforce diversity. This is a very good example of how companies might get pulled into these conversations now. Uh, she's going to form a new subcommittee on the House Financial Services Committee for diversity and inclusion in the workforce. This is actually the first time Congress has ever had any subcommittee that's been more about these issues of workforce diversity and inclusion. Uh, that alone is interesting, but she specifically said, quote, the subcommittee's work will do, they will be doing some very basic work about compiling the data on what's really going on, not only in the financial services community, but in our country with major corporations, close quote. Very basic work compiling the data about things like workforce diversity. This is where you should be thinking, oh boy, is my HR department going to get a document request? Very possible, especially if you are a large financial services firm and companies have already been needled by activists um, in the investor community or non-governmental organizations or other activism on social media about what are your compensation policies? What are your promotion policies? Do those policies uh, encourage minority representations, particularly in the management ranks? Maxine Waters singled that out, diversity in management ranks. Um, how are you doing on that? She's very curious about it. And a lot of other people have been curious about it before, but they've been needling companies from the outside. Now we have a congressional committee that could serve you with a subpoena if they wanted to. Um, I think that this is especially interesting because don't forget the Trump administration first in 2017 suspended new disclosure requirements around diversity and uh, compensation practices with uh, relevant to women and minorities. Uh, that was going to be very onerous for com companies to comply with anyways. It was revisions to the EE01 form, if I remember correctly. 
So the Trump administration repealed that. It's probably uh, very much relieved to corporations because it would have been onerous. Um, the Trump administration is also looking to revisit and repeal some current interpretations of civil rights law, specifically to defang that enforcement principle of disparate impact. And that's the policy. You know, a policy could have a discipline, a discriminatory effect, anyways, even if a company didn't specifically set uh, set out to have a discriminatory effect in its intent. I'm kind of mangling that, but basically, you know, you could have a pay policy or compensation policy that inadvertently afflicts or keeps one particular group out of. Um, fair representation in uh, management ranks or fair advancement. You know, you didn't set out to be discriminatory, but your policy winds up um, having a disparate impact on a certain group of employees anyways. The Obama administration said that was a problem. The Trump administration said, no, it's not a problem. Maxine Waters wants to look into how much of a problem it may or may not be. So we're right back to holding hearings, investigations, special reports, collecting data, document requests to big companies about all of this stuff. Uh, so that's something that is probably going to come up in 2019 and 2020. Um, I do think that we're going to see a lot more conflicts like that. I think it's emblematic of the tensions that Democrats in the House are going to have with the Trump administration. Uh, the Trump administration is pushing out these policies that it wants. Democrats are going to hold hearings to say, let's see how this really affects the average consumer, the middle class and middle America. They're going to do all of this. Sure, it's political theater, but it's political theater that will sell to a certain portion of the electorate. And companies are going to have to think about, am I going to get pulled into this? Is my CEO going to have to testify? Um, is somebody else going to be testifying against my company? Uh, or, you know, or Do we have any sort of exposure of reputation risk to some of the issues that Maxine Waters is going to put into the frying pan and then she's going to turn up the heat because she can. Whether you like it or not, that is the reality. Um, so I think a lot of those issues are going to be up for grabs and companies that have a lot of um, concerns around that. Uh, she specifically cited Silicon Valley companies and Google and Facebook and many others, Apple. They've been talking about workforce diversity for a while. Now you may talk about that uh, in the midst of a congressional inquiry, which is less comfortable than just talking about it and putting out a report voluntarily. But you know, these kind of issues are going to come up in 2019, 2020. Uh, she talked an awful lot also about oversight of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, housing and urban development uh, department. So again, if your company is like under heavy jurisdiction of the CFPB or you bid a lot on HUD contracts, you could get called onto the congressional carpet to talk about how you've seen things change in two years since the Trump administration uh, started rearranging what the CFPB and what HUD have been doing. So there'll be a lot of issues like that. And then I just want to sort of close by saying that I think this is going to be the motif for Democrats for the next two years in Congress, uh, especially as the 2020 presidential campaign gears up. And yes, listeners like you, I just kind of rolled my eyes and threw up in my mouth a little bit that I had to start thinking about the 2020 campaign, but we do. Uh, the fact is, Democratic presidential candidates, uh, whether that's Elizabeth Warren or Joe Biden or Amy Klobuchar or Kamala Harris or anybody else, they're going to make this sort of issue their big deal 
for the next two years, that what the Trump administration is doing is harming the middle class. That's what their argument is going to be. Maxine Waters and uh, Jerry Nadler on the Judiciary Committee and a whole bunch of others in all of their committees in Congress, they're going to investigate and put out reports playing into that idea. So we're going to have a lot of political theater in 2019 and into 2020 around these ideas to support that broader message the Democrats want. Is it accurate? Is it not? Is it fair? Is it not? You know what? We can decide that in November 2020. But we are deluding ourselves if we're not thinking that's the argument that's going to happen for the next two years. And there's going to be a whole lot of looking for raw material to put forth for these hearings and investigations. Corporate transactions are going to be that raw material. Your hiring practices, your compensation policies, um, your tax policies, what did you do with that tax cut in 2017? Some of these issues are beyond the purview of compliance officers. Some of them are not. Some of them are in your purview. You're going to have to be thinking about all of that. Um, but that's really what is going to be going on. And so that's why, regardless of what you might think of Maxine Waters personally, um, what she has to say is worth listening to and considering because this stuff is coming. And uh, compliance officers in corporate America, they, they need to keep an eye on that. Matt, I have a question for you. Uh, you've previously written about some of the issues that a compliance officer may have to deal with in light of uh, the Trump administration's um, Charlottesville policy and other mm-hmm. areas along those lines, specifically what happens if someone comes in a parking lot with uh, racist uh, slogans on their car, or even a, a stars and bars of a Confederate flag uh, flying from the back end of their pickup truck. Could something like that uh, be the subject of a hearing to see what its impact might be on a workplace? Uh, I think it very well could be that the congressional Democrats might, I don't know exactly what committee might do this, maybe the judiciary, but uh, they could open a hearing on something like radical conservative terrorism in the United States. So uh, the Trump supporter who was mailing pipe bombs to the media or um, any accusations about some sort of a mass shooter who might go after like a black church or something like that. Like there are many ways that Democrats could frame radical conservative terrorism in the United States, radical white supremacy. That would be another one, uh, that this is a real public safety threat. And then that leads to a real world case a compliance officer told me about last fall where co-workers were complaining about somebody who was plastering his truck with Trump and various other extreme right-wing bumper stickers, and they weren't feeling comfortable. Um, I think another one that people might want to consider is more of what I call Trump party risk or Trump third party risk. If your third party is the Trump administration, tech companies, you already know what I'm talking about here. Um, If you are supporting the Trump administration in you by providing IT services, you're bidding on a big defense contract, you might see your employees disliking that. Google ran into this problem. Uh, Salesforce ran into this problem. Um, you know, Customers and employees have been forging alliances on social media to pr- compel their companies not to work with the Trump administration because they disagree with its political priorities. Now, House Democrats have an opportunity to fuel that fire and to turn up the flames. Um, You can debate the merits of if employees and customers should do that or not. 
Uh, I tend to be more real politic about it. If your customers and employees don't want you to do something, you're not going to do it because they're going to be up in arms, which is exactly what happened to Google. Um, so, you know, I could see that becoming more and more of an issue. The, the Democrats now have subpoena power that can magnify all of the tensions that we've had for the last two years. Um, I'm not saying this is going to be a fun walk in the park for the next two years, but that is what they'll be able to do. So, Tom, your point is, is well taken. Jay Rosen, you have been thinking quite a bit about what 2019 may mean for the compliance professional, the compliance practitioner, the chief compliance officer. What are your thoughts on the compliance profession going forward into this year? So, uh, thanks, Tom. Um, You know, it's early January, and it's a time for resolutions and predictions. And with that in mind, I'd like to highlight an article that Richard Casson founder of the award-winning and groundbreaking FCPA blog posted last week, and it's appropriately entitled, and the big compliance story for 2019 is... It kind of reminds me of an award show where the presenter says, and the Oscar goes to. uh, In his piece, uh, Dick posits that nearly every corporate anti-bribery violation reveals problems with internal controls and SEC enforcement actions describe devious employees who are able to subvert the controls and therefore create slush funds and pay bribes or controls that were weak to begin with and incapable of detecting or stopping corrupt actors. He sees this here as a great opportunity to marry internal controls with enhanced artificial intelligence that will detect and correct systemic weaknesses and when needed, outsmart those employees who have bad intentions. Uh, The FCPA's internal control provisions uh, attract less attention than the flashier anti-bribery provisions, but they're crucial to preventing bribery, and that's why they've been included as part of the FCPA. And just as a recap, the internal control uh, provisions require issuers to devise and maintain a system of internal accounting controls sufficient to provide reasonable assurances that, number one, transactions are executed in accordance with management's general or specific authorization, two, transactions are recorded as necessary to permit preparation of financial statements in conformity with generally accepted accounting principles, three, Access to assets is permitted only in accordance with management's general or specific authorization. And finally, number four, recorded accountability for assets is compared with existing assets at reasonable intervals and appropriate action is taken with respect to the differences. The joining together of internal controls and artificial intelligence has already started, particularly in the financials uh, in institutions, and uh, Dick believes that the pace of development will accelerate in 2019 and beyond. And one day, sooner than we think, we'll realize how AI-enhanced internal controls have drastically changed and improved compliance and raised expectations about preventing corporate bribery. AI-enhanced internal controls aren't going to replace compliance officers or due diligence, but there'll be a blend of automated and manual human due diligence systems that are embedded deep in corporate-wide compliance programs upstream from internal controls. 
These AI-enhanced internal controls will impact compliance officers by forcing even more integration and cooperation with other parts of the corporation. Compliance departments and technical groups will have to team up with HR, travel, marketing, sales, purchasing, logistics, accounts payable, internal audit, and so on to design and deploy the systems that will keep them working. AI-enhanced internal controls won't become best practices all at once, but they'll arrive through a process of trial and error with gradual improvement here, a few missteps there, and some big leaps forward. Eventually, maybe sometime this year, who knows, the right technology that's cost-effective will be fitted to the tasks internal controls are supposed to perform and will work. Dick pegs this to be one of the big uh, compliance stories for ethics and compliance in 2019, so I'd like to make a date to revisit this in a year and see if he's right. Jay, you emphasize the need to wed the professionalism and professional expertise of the compliance practitioner with the technological solution, or at least the technological ability of uh, AI and internal controls. Do you see the need for the compliance profession itself to really move towards an educational component which would uh, move away from uh, from a law background really to a business process background? Or do you think that uh, uh, the law background is still enough? I, I think the, the former is the way it's going to go, Tom, that we've been seeing this probably gradually change over the last 10 to 15 years that, um, you know, compliance not only is uh, – something that you can study, you can get an undergraduate, you can get a graduate's degree, and what uh, formerly was just the purview of legal is now really going to be coming its own discipline that we know. And I think technology affects so many other ways uh, that we do business and parts of the business that I I do believe that educational component is going to be necessary. And, uh, you know, once again, we are always looking to the vendors in this space uh, to provide the solutions and keep moving us forward. So I think, you know, this is no longer going to be the realm of the IT department, but there is going to have to be some uh, institutional design and input coming both from, uh, you know, not only the legal side, but also the compliance and the HR side uh, to come up with these solutions going forward. So, Mike Volkoff, uh, you have uh, written, uh, podcasted, and it sounds like and looks like I've been thinking about where FCPA enforcement may go in 2019. Given the, uh, I thought, interesting year we had in 2018, where do you see enforcement itself going or perhaps uh, the Department of Justice taking on some new initiatives as well? Well, following on uh, Jay's theme here in terms of Uh, retrospectives or predictions. Uh, FCPA predictions for 2019, I I look back on some of my earlier predictions and I uh, was consistently uh, wrong in several areas. One was I always predicted that Walmart was going to be settled in a particular year. And for the last three years, uh, Walmart has not been settled. So um, so this year I'm trying reverse psychology. Uh, Walmart will not get settled in 2019. <laughs> we'll see it get settled in 2020. That's what I uh, my prediction is. But 
Um, I think the interesting maturation of the FCPA enforcement program is that uh, it's becoming and it's getting to the point where it's um, politically immune. In other words, you don't have uh, changes, significant changes in enforcement priorities between Democratic Democrat administrations and Republican administrations. Unlike antitrust enforcement, which tends to move in certain ways depending upon the politics of the uh, administration, I think we're starting to see the what I would call institutionalization of enforcement. And we've all talked about the importance of the FCPA uh, corporate enforcement policy. And I think that's the sort of headline from 2018 is that that, that policy is taking root. And I think we're going to see a continuation of that uh, in terms of declinations with disgorgement um, and a continued focus uh, on individual prosecutions. Um, I think the other interesting thing from 2018 um, has to be uh, the increase in criminal prosecutions of individuals. This year, past year, we had 26, uh, which was an increase from 17 from the year before. Um, the Pedavesa uh, investigation is mushrooming into more and more individuals being prosecuted, but I think the focus of any administration is going to be individual prosecutions. So now, I think we're at 26 uh, for last year, and I think we're going to get even more this year, I think, into the 30s or 40s uh, in terms of individual uh, indictments and enforcement. I think that's a huge uh, increase, and I think um, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping it has more of a deterrence message and a more effective deterrence message. Uh, in terms of the overall priorities. Um, I also think there, we, and we always talk about global enforcement and coordination among global law enforcement. Uh, in the increase in that, we saw obviously with Brazil, with the UK, uh, and we've seen a lot of Brazil investigations that have sort of morphed into U.S. investigations or at least been coordinated with U.S. investigations. Obviously, we have Petrobras in the last uh, year as well. I think that uh, we also should take note of the fact that we have a, a U.S. lawyer now heading the U.K.'s serious uh, fraud office, Lisa Sofsky. And the serious fraud office has started to bring criminal cases themselves against individuals and been pretty aggressive beyond just the Rolls-Royce case. And I think we'll probably see a larger role uh, in, in that area. Um, in terms of corporate monitorships, uh, I, the recent announcement from DOJ in terms of you know setting up guidelines for how they appoint monitors and when they should be appointed, um, to me it's just we're going to see more sort of of a reduction. I think I would be surprised if we had a case with a corporate monitor. Although I hear that one of the disagreements relating to the Walmart case is whether or not they uh, should have a monitor. Uh, and Walmart is obviously arguing that uh, they have a robust compliance program and they don't and remediated it in such that they, they don't need a monitor. Um, just some other sort of uh, ideas that I think are going to come up. I think uh, DOJ, we may see, and um, I anticipate that we'll see some kind of undercover sting or undercover case. When you get more prosecutors and more agents working on cases, they inevitably will find somebody who can be an informant 
introduce an undercover officer. Uh, and ever since the SHOT Show Sting case debacle uh, with Richard Bistrong as the uh, informant, um, I think we're going to see um, sort of another push in this area and possibly a Title III uh, wiretap case. Um, and I'm actually interested to see what kind of creative uh, approaches they, they can use. A couple cases just to watch in terms of my predictions. Goldman Sachs is, is the new big case, the, the Malaysia 1MDB case. Uh, and I think that's going to dominate FCPA uh, enforcement headlines. I, I doubt it will be resolved this year, but who knows? And there may be more prosecutions of individuals. We'll see. A couple cases that have been sort of below the radar screen, and I, I'm sort of waiting for them to get resolved, is the Erickson case, which has been pending since 2013. And perhaps a, a sleeper case is the Microsoft case. It's been going on for years and years and we just had an updated disclosure where they added uh, they're investigating channel partners in Hungary. That's in addition to prior disclosures involving channel partners problems in Italy, China, and Romania. But whatever is going on with Microsoft, it's this case has been going on for at least five, six years. Uh, and one other case that uh, I'm sure will be resolved this year is Fresenius, uh, which is the dialysis company. Um, they've announced uh, reserves of $245 million, and then they increased the reserve announcement by $86 million. So we're in the $300 million range. We're in the big case uh, category. But uh, that's where I see uh, enforcement going. There are also some big investigations that have been disclosed involving Airbus, Glencore Mining, General Electric, CHS just announced uh, the agribusiness, the global agribusiness and the ever-present cognizant technology uh, case keeps going on and on. There's more for sure, but those that's sort of just a sample of where uh, things are right now, and I just think it's going gonna, it's, it's to be an interesting year. Matt, did you hey, have hey, a Mike. question? Yeah. I do, yeah. So, Mike, first off, thank you for mentioning Cognizant, because as I was listening to all of your predictions, I, I'm very curious to see Cognizant as well. Yeah. Um, but uh, my question is more, or an observation about enforcement on the SEC side, because twice now within the last five months, I think with Polycom and with Sanofi and probably others, we have seen them impose not just disgorgement of ill-gotten profits, but penalties for poor internal controls. They've done that before. I have seen Republican commissioners very clearly say, no, this is fair game. You know, everybody, we disclose all of this or companies disclose all of this at the start. Investors know that this is important. So we are not opposed to imposing penalties on companies for poor internal controls around FCPA, which is, I mean, these penalties never strike me as huge amounts of money, um, but it is a more rigorous application of enforcement uh, than the Justice Department with its uh, declinations. And to be clear, I think what the Justice Department has proposed is generally very reasonable. Um, but I'm just struck that the SEC is still like, you know, they'll ding you with the fine for FCPA violations. And I don't know if you have any thoughts or observations. If we're going to keep that going. But that's stuck out with me in 2018 as I was looking back. You know, Matt, that's a, a great point because um, 
the SEC, you know, has never sort of put out any statement with regard to uh, any reaction or sort of embrace of the F- the Justice Department's corporate enforcement policy. And in practice, I think they want to have the ability to impose penalties beyond just a sort of disgorgement um, resolution. And uh, I think it coincides with uh, an aggressive staff uh, and a, a staff that's becoming more and more aggressive. And um, in terms of the way they are digging into uh, financial and uh, your controls and internal controls has been more and more aggressive, uh, particularly in the procurement to invoice to payment processes. And you raise a really good point. I think that what that means is that even though the Justice Department looks at your controls, it's the SEC who takes the time to really tear them apart and find deficiencies. And then you're paying a price not only in disgorgement, but more likely in a a civil penalty. For example, the Sanofi case in the past year, the United uh, Technologies case, um, the amount of time and effort that they spent in the settlement documents digging through the internal controls was I mean, I thought fascinating because we're geeks, you know, when it comes to internal controls. But to me, if I'm sitting at a business right now, I've got to watch uh, and I've got to be more careful with my controls than ever before. And it's interesting because we we thought, you know, the Trump SEC and we thought Jay Clayton and all of this was going to be, you know, is there going to be a change in FCPA enforcement? And I think the SEC has ended up sort of uh, supporting the aggressive staff positions so far. Um, and I don't know if you've had that same perception, but I, I'm, I'm actually pleasantly surprised on how aggressive they have been. I, I would agree with that. I was always struck several years ago now, but former SEC Commissioner Michael Piwowar, who was a Republican appointee from the Obama administration, and he left, I want to say, about 15 months ago, um, Michael Piwar is no shrinking violet about being a vocal conservative, um, and you can kind of derive some of the usual positions he take. But he was always very clear about the FCPA. He's like, no, we have the right to enforce a penalty if we think that we should. And even though he has since moved on, clearly they still are. I mean, you know, look, these are like, like I said, they're not huge penalties in the grand scheme of things, but they're penalties, which is more than the Justice Department. And to your point, like. It can be really tricky to impose effective accounting controls over your distributors and resellers. And like this is a, a sticky thing that I think is going to keep being kind of messy for compliance officers. I, I agree. And you know what it does, uh, Matt, is it forces compliance officers to knock on the door of the CFO and the whole uh, financial establishment and say, I have to get a seat at the table here because of the implications of the financial controls and, you know, CFOs are not the most welcoming sorts when it comes to compliance officers coming in and saying, let's work together on uh, internal controls. They feel that it's kind of their baby and from Sarbanes-Oxley days and that they are responsible for it and they put together the best mousetrap ever. Compliance now has to dig into these things because look at the implications from these SEC enforcement actions. Yeah. Mike, one of the things that you have uh, consistently written and talked about is the evolution of the Department of Justice 
leading to the 2017 FCPA corporate enforcement policy, and then the anti-piling on policy, the addition of uh, mergers and acquisitions safe harbor into the new uh, corporate enforce, FCPA corporate enforcement policy in the summer of 2018, leading to the Benkowski memo. Do you see also perhaps in 2019 some additional, uh, if not evolution of the DOJ's uh, positions, some uh, times where they actually meld uh Function, excuse me, form into function and put in on paper some of the practices that uh, they've really uh, evolved uh, into? Well, that's an interesting question because I still think um, there's some feeling within the department, at least from, you know, people that I know who, who work there, that uh, there was a fair amount of resentment over the issue of uh, Wei Chen and the fact that the prosecutors, you know, sort of needed compliance expertise and they needed somebody to teach them compliance. A lot of the prosecutors felt, we know what compliance looks like. We know what uh, is going on. We don't need uh, a person who's going to, you know, quote unquote, teach us. Um, And the Benchkowski memo uh, included the fact that uh, Brian in that memo said uh, that they were not going to replace Wei Chen And I think that we may see some push for additional guidance in the compliance area because of that. They want to show their expertise and they may want to, um, I don't want to say erase the Wei Chen era, but I think there's a a little bit of resentment towards um, how her position was characterized and how her work was characterized because um, they actually, a lot of the prosecutors are really pretty sophisticated when it comes to compliance. And that's because they get these presentations from companies all the time. And they also follow the technology. They follow the developments. They read Tom Fox. They read Matt Kelly. They read Jay Rosen. And they they follow this. Uh, and so I think we may see some kind of um, guidance or document that may come out. It may take a year or two, but I think they feel that that's the next area for them uh, to address is and, and to promote compliance um, because they see that as part of their mission as well. Jonathan Armstrong, you are visiting the fair shores of your former colony, uh, now called the United States of America. So uh, first of all, uh, welcome from uh, uh, to our former master's. Well, thanks very much. Uh, I think enough of the former. Politics is so volatile at the moment. I think we'll eventually find out the U.S. is on lease, not a gift. (laughs) Well, then I'm going to be like Hong Kong and want a 99-year lease. (laughs) So, uh, Jonathan, um, as you know, uh, Mike talked about FCPA, where it may go in 2019. Jay told us about the compliance profession and where it may go. Matt went a little bit deeper uh, talking about Representative Maxine Waters and her investigations that she's announced and how that may impact not only compliance officers, but also corporations in this uh, uh, bipartisan political or partisan political environment. Um, Do you have any more cheery cheery news than that from the United Kingdom perspective, or uh, is it going to be more of the same from from what you see right now? Well, I think all three of them are, are, are great topics. I think we're seeing an increasing area in all of those interests, the increased professionalism of the compliance profession. That's to be 
welcomed. I think we are seeing some interesting things around bribery. The uh, SFO has had some uncertainties over some of the uh, showpiece prosecutions that were left over from the uh, uh, old SFO regime. But at least the mood music early on seems to be that the new director of the SFO is uh, perhaps correcting some of the uh, misperceptions of the last regime, uh, a better restrictor of a uh, respecter of legal privilege, uh, I think. And uh, it seems, at least from the early mood music, more uh, recognizing of the great work that compliance professionals do. So we'll see some significant um, SFO activity, I think, in 2019. I think we'll start and see more activity around Sapander as well, The, uh, if you like, the French equivalent of FCPA. I think the misperception of you know, France then versus France now is still a barrier. I've been in New York, as you said. I was at the New York State Bar Association meeting on Wednesday. It was interesting that some of the government speakers were felt unable to take their place on the platform because of the uh, the, the, the suspension of pay and the furloughing, etc., in the U.S. But one who did take his place on the platform had a somewhat outdated view of France. You know, saying uh, we, the U.S., encourage whistleblowers, but in France they're banned and it's illegal to be a whistleblower, which uh, has never really been the position, and certainly isn't the position Sapander uh, post Sapander, and it was regrettable that somebody in a uh, position of public office was so uh, misinformed. So there's certainly all sorts of issues around cross-Atlantic cooperation and uh, and perception. Um, I guess you would expect me to talk about two things, uh, Brexit being one, which I'm frankly too depressed to talk about, um, but there is undoubtedly going to be a number of compliance challenges around Brexit in 2019, however we end up. And even if there's no Brexit, there is still going to be uh, complexities, you know, some of them from a fairly minor point of view, like if there is no Brexit, how does the UK fit into what's called the OLAF regime to investigate fraud across the EU to the major that if there is a Brexit, how uh, do things like data transfer work? Will that impinge on cooperation in bribery investigations, et cetera? My, my suggestion would be that the, uh, the, there should be not that much impact on um, investigations. There are various other methods to do arrest warrants and things like that. But, uh, but the effect on data protection, data privacy would be more consequential. And I guess we see that in a time of significant activity around GDPR. Uh, as we speak, Max Schrems has just launched uh, an interesting series of complaints to regulators in the EU over subject access requests. So I think we're going to see three significant areas of activity in 2019 in GDPR. 
The first, I think, will be subject access request. Schrems is obviously, again, at the vanguard here with the complaints he has made, and, and the complaints are effectively aim, aimed at large players. I think from memory, uh, if all of the complaints were upheld to the maximum amount allowed for as a fine, then the regulators would collect from memory 18.9 billion, with a B, billion euros from this investigation alone, according at least to Schrems's figures. So, so subject access is going to be a real area of controversy. And that affects businesses large and small. You know, if I have a departing employee, they frequently now ask me for the records on them. Even employees that are leaving in bad faith quite often ask for the records on them. And regulators are getting more and more involved in those complaints. Total complaints around the EU uh, under GDPR, uh, given that it only came in in May, is standing at somewhere around the 60,000 mark as at the end of November. So if you do the math, as we sit here today, probably around the 80 to 90,000 complaints level. And traditionally, around half the complaints lodged with regulators have been about data subject rights, subject access. So, so that probably gets us at a figure of, let's say, 40,000 complaints about people uh, seeking access to their information and not getting it or complaining that it's partial, et cetera, et cetera. So subject access requests are going to be a key area. Transparency is going to be a key area as well. We're seeing that as an underlying theme of a lot of the regulatory settlements that we're getting earlier. And that's as simple as Austria now say that they've closed 59 GDPR cases with a sanction. And a lot of those are around surveillance cameras CCTV cameras, as we call them in Europe, that weren't correctly signposted. Uh, so if you have a surveillance camera in the workplace, that needs to, you need a sign to tell people it's there. And it's the same with online behaviours. If you're going to monitor people's online behaviour, you need to tell them. If you're going to send cookies, you need to tell them. So we're going to see a lot of these transparency actions around GDPR. And the third, and by far the largest area of activity around GDPR, in my prediction, will be around data breach. We're seeing the industrialization of cybercrime. Uh, uh, Office 365 systems, for example, in my experience, there's a lot of activity around O365, a lot of activity around phishing, and then the plain usual dumb, leaving a laptop on a train, leaving a laptop on a plane. I was in a cafe yesterday. Uh, somebody was uh, managing a reduction in force on the phone in the cafe, you know, going through with a colleague which officers were to go, even to the extent of who was going at which particular office. Then she needed a bathroom break immediately after her Skype call and asked me to watch her laptop for her, you know still logged on to the system and <laughs> still, you know, there and then with presumably, if I'd have looked and I challenged myself not to look, presumably with the table that she'd written out a minute earlier of who was going in the organization and where. So people still taking incredible risks with data. 
currently there are around about 35,000 data breach reports have been made uh, across Europe since GDPR came in. So, you know, in the in the UK, for example, alone, 19,000 uh, people have, or 19,000 incidents have been notified to the regulator. Um, and regulators are, are plowing through those cases as we speak, and, and they're obviously taking time to do so. You know, in Germany, traditionally regarded as a very aggressive area of GDPR regulation, north of 6,000 data breach and notifications made to German regulators uh, as at the end of September. So significant volumes of complaints, and we'll see some uh, a rubber hitting the road in terms of enforcement action in 2019 as well. And that might not be the sort of, you know, 18 billion euro figures that Trends has talked about. Uh, and I don't think even he thinks that the fines will go up to the maximum, but we will start and see enforcement activity, prohibition notices, uh, et cetera, et cetera, in, in 2019 for sure. So Jonathan, within the context of Brexit and GDPR, or, or I suppose I should say, within the context of the Venn diagram where they intersect, do you see uh, any guidance, uh, or at least can you give any um, direction a compliance practitioner might look regarding data transfers in the under uh, in the rubric of an investigation? Is that going to change? Does it depend on the status of Brexit, or is it just a soldier on? I think you've got to have a plan. And for many organizations, um, you, you know, I've, I've been advising a client on, on this today, for example, you're going to have to look at things like where is your data held? Um, do you want to move it? Do you want to mirror it? Do you want to split? And that's relatively easy to do from a technical point of view or increasingly easy to do from a technical point of view because if your data is in Azure or AWS, then you can ask your provider to spin up an additional server, but you'll need to plan that and you'll also need to look at um, some technical things like if you have a data protection authority in the EU, a lead data protection authority, and that lead data protection authority is the UK, then you might need to give thought to who your lead DPA would be if the UK weren't in the EU. And at the same time, you might also need to reach out to the ICO if your lead data protection regulator is currently a DPA that is in the EU that isn't the UK. You might also need to look at data transfer agreements. Uh, you probably already have a data transfer agreement between the EU and the US, but you might need to look at a data transfer agreement separately between the UK and the US, and then additionally between the UK and the EU. And if there's a hard Brexit, then that's... Uh, uh, you know, you'll need to get all of that stuff done and signed and delivered by first or second week 
of March. And within a, and with many corporations, that's quite a challenging timeline if you need to locate corporate signatories and they're on business trips or vacation or whatever that might be. So you might even want to look at powers of attorney to enable you to sign that type of agreement really quickly if you need to. And then depending on your business, you might also need to look at other things aside from data protection. So you might need to look at the reach regulations if you import goods into the EU. You might need to look at customs regulations. You might need to look at appointing a representative in the EU if the majority of your activities in the in, in, in the UK, you know, that you might be required to do that under GDPR. You might be required to do that under toy safety legislation. There's a whole raft of different measures that might require you to do something in terms of a registration or a nomination. So I think the clever businesses are going through that planning process now, knowing that they, you know, if they do need to do something, they probably only have four weeks to do it. And, and so uh, time is of the essence. But obviously, everybody's plan, we're, we're doing what's called BIPs, uh, Brexit Impact Plan. Everyone's BIP is going to be slightly different because that will depend on the regulatory regime that they're under. Well, gentlemen, we are now on to rants. So why don't we keep uh, the same order? Uh, Mr. Kelly, you want to start us off? I do, actually. And I'm going to start off on a a positive note uh, with a rave, Uh, although it is based on a rant I had several months ago. I think last summer I was ranting about Bird, the scooter rental company, and how their approach to um, reaching out and expanding into new markets in the U.S. was just to show up, drop their rental scooters all over the city, and then let customers use them, and never tell city officials we are doing this. Uh, And I ranted back then because the first city that Bird did this was my own city of lovely Cambridge, Massachusetts, where suddenly I had these scooters on my property and all over the the block. Um, And our city wound up in a cat and mouse game with Bird as we were driving around town, the DPW trucks, impounding Bird scooters until Bird came back to the table and agreed that it would start to negotiate some sort of a notification plan. Um, Now... That was then. I was very pleased, and I am raving about this week. I saw an article in the New York Times about how the city of Portland decided to take a more proactive approach with online rental uh, scooter and bike companies like Lime and eScooter and a few others, uh, where the city capped the number of available items that these companies could put on city streets. Uh, and then the, the companies had to apply for them. They had to supply data to the city about who's using them, where are they using them uh, as a pilot program. And it was a good success. And now the city says we're going to launch a larger secondary pilot program for a whole year with even more permitted scooter rentals and bike rentals and all these other little personal transportation rental companies. Um I have mixed feelings about whether these are viable business models, but what annoyed me to no end with Bird was it's go in guns blazing and regulations and stakeholders be damned approach 
the first time around. And now uh, I am very pleased with the companies that are cooperating with the city officials in Portland to see how could we do this more intelligently. For example, Portland specifically was giving more permits for areas that were close to, but not immediately next to, the city's mass transit. So if you live like a mile or two away from the Portland subway system or whatever they call it out there, uh, you'd be able to take more scooters there to get to the subway rather than drive to a parking lot. Good forward thinking like that. And we are going to need more of that as Airbnb takes over more and more residential areas um, in Massachusetts. We now have more regulations around home rentals like that. Um, All these other ways that Uber and Bird and Lime and all the other hip-named businesses, the way that they want to try and go in guns blazing without thinking about how to manage business growth and its effect on other stakeholders, um, annoyed me to no end with Bird last year. I am thrilled to see that others are now taking a more intelligent approach this year, and I hope that they do. I hope they succeed. Um, but if we all have to hold hands as we enter this brave new world of online rental of everything, that's my, my rave. Jay Rosen, do you have a rant for us? Uh, I have a semi rant that, uh, might be moot by the time this podcast actually, uh, is posted, but, uh, Tom Brady and the Patriots are competing in their eighth consecutive AFC championship game this coming Sunday in Kansas City. And it's a battle between old and new, a battle between a pocket passer, the 199th pick in the draft, Mr. Irrelevant, who along with his coach requires the biggest chips in the world on their shoulders versus the new amazing Patrick Mahomes, who is the future of the NFL. The dreams of Michael Vick and RG3 finally come to fruition. So even though Tom Brady told the press last week that everybody thinks the Patriots suck, I'm going to stick with them, at least for one more game. The king is dead. Well, I'm not so sure. But for Patrick Mahomes, long live the king. Michael Volkoff. Well, I have uh, not a rant or a rave, but an interesting question. The BuzzFeed uh, press report that came out about uh, Michael Cohen supposedly being directed by uh, our president to lie before Congress with regard to his testimony uh, as to the Trump administration's involvement or Donald Trump's particular involvement in the uh, Russia-Moscow hotel project. Uh, Interesting question to me will be, uh, if this is true, um, what is the corroborating evidence that they have Uh, With regard to Michael Cohen's uh, testimony, obviously uh, nobody's going to believe Cohen just alone, although I think he's going to be a fairly persuasive uh, witness. Um, And uh, I think people are going to be looking for what is the evidence that they have. Now, we know that the president doesn't use uh, texting or doesn't use uh, uh, email very much. So what is the evidence that corroborates uh, Michael Cohen's testimony? Is it uh, believable? Absolutely. But the question is, uh, what support does he have uh, for the claim? So that's going to be an interesting issue, but I think it's a, it, it could be, and I don't want to use the term game changer, but I think it's an important development if it's true. Jonathan Armstrong, do you have a rant for us today? I have a slightly self-centered rant, Tom. 
Um, it's uh, you could almost call it the golden age of travel. I think quite often when you travel these days, you sometimes have colleagues who travel less for business who regard it as a very glamorous activity. I think oftentimes you might um, work with people, you know, clients or colleagues or friends and acquaintances who somehow have visions of, I don't know, let's say Titanic had gone well and people had walked off the uh, harbour side in New York with furs and servants and monogrammed luggage. Um, and I think in some respects, people have a vision of that. You know, I can recall one time being on holiday in the in uh, being on holiday in Cornwall, having to go to the US for a business meeting and the people whose house we were renting saying, you know, that is fantastically glamorous. But the reality was really that I'd, you know, interrupted my holiday, gone to a small airport, waited on a metal seat for my plane, uh, got a plane over to the US, queued for two hours to get through a customs line, had a rubber chicken lunch with somebody I didn't particularly care for, and then <laughs> repeated the entire exercise. And that was two days of my vacation. So, um, so I guess my rant is, can we return even a little bit to the golden days of, of travel? Uh, and particularly, I appreciate that you know, everybody in the world has their issues with immigration, and it's right and proper that we uh, check people when they enter a country. But... Uh, but, and this isn't directed at any particular nation that I've got to exit soon, but uh, a little civility goes a long way. At the New York State Bar Association meeting, the um, president made a speech on Wednesday about uh, the, uh, a wish to return to civility in public affairs and saying that attorneys uh, should take the lead in being pleasant to people. And I agree with that. But I'd like to extend that to customs and immigration officials as well. Well, gentlemen, as always, it's been a uh, great episode. I wanted to thank everyone, and I look forward to our next uh, conversation on the Everything Compliance Podcast. Thank you. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Everything Compliance. I hope you will join the gang for our next episode in a couple of weeks. The Everything Compliance Gang is Jonathan Armstrong, Mike Volkoff, Jay Rosen, and Matt Kelly. Everything Compliance is a presentation of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.